This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. Rue, hi. Hello, Layla. It's good to see you again. We're in um, the Royal Festival Hall today. And very nice it is too. It's lovely. Yeah, and uh, we've got a special guest with us today, a programmer, a hacker, a writer. Mm. His name's John Graham Cumming. Hello, John. Hello, nice to be here. Nice to see you. Um, so, John, can you tell us about... Well, I guess the Geek Atlas is the thing that you're probably... One of the things you're well-known for at the moment. Um, can you tell us a bit about the Geek Atlas? And how did you uh, come up with the idea for that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Geek Atlas is um, a travel book for people interested in science and technology. And um, I came up with the idea because I actually wanted to buy it. So what happened <laughs> to me was I was uh, working in Munich temporarily... And in Munich, there's this wonderful museum called the Deutsches Museum, which is a bit like the Science Museum in London, uh, but perhaps even bigger and even more spectacular in many ways. And I went round it because I was a bit bored one evening, and um, I thought, why haven't I never heard of this place? There must be a book for someone like me who likes science technology. I'll um, you know, go on Amazon, see if I can get a copy. So I did all sorts of different searches, and I couldn't find it. And I thought, well, actually, nobody's written this book. So perhaps I should have a go at putting together places I've been with uh, you know, a good description of the place and also some of the science, because one of the things I wanted was you to be able to understand some of the science behind the place. And I came up with about 70 places that evening. I just wrote down uh, in an Emacs buffer, for those of you who are nerdy. After that, I expanded the list to 128 places. And it's been out for about a year now, actually. Uh, last June, I guess, was when it was published. And the book has a mixture of things because it's both a travel book it has the traditional travel things of you know where the place is is it good for kids all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and second of all it has the science so for example in germany another thing in germany um there's the Röntgen museum where Röntgen, the man who discovered x-rays lived it's actually part of his house and other buildings and accompanying that i have an explanation of how x-rays are made in an x-ray machine so in two pages i tried to do a layman's introduction without dumbing it down but a a short introduction to the science so a lot of people like the book as a sort of armchair traveling thing because you can sit there and read about the place look at pictures and actually read about the science Mm. and which is the geekiest country Oh, that's a very difficult question. I mean, you mentioned Germany twice there. I think maybe Germany's quite geeky. They're quite they're quite rational. If you look at the sort of history of science from, say, about the 1600s onwards, which is you know, in my book, is it's it's quite Western. So there's not. I don't go into say ancient science in the Middle East, which would be fun to do, but their sites are very difficult to visit. And above all, I wanted it to be visitable. Mm. Um, so if you then go into sort of slightly more modern era, so 1600s onwards, then obviously science was being developed widely in Germany, in France, in the UK, and then of course slightly later on in the US. So obviously Europe and uh, the US are quite heavily covered. Yes, Germans probably do have, well, particularly the Deutsches Museum, which is um, quite geeky, it's true. Um, the Part of the reason why I really fell in love with the Deutsches Museum is they have a slice through an Airbus in there so they've they've got it i think it's an a320 which they've cut through like it's a piece of swiss roll <laughs> and um, you can see you know where the floor is where you walk mm. in a plane the seats and then you can see underneath where everything is and it's just hanging it's not a model it's the real plane it's just hanging there and so you sort of look at that and you know, that's that's quite geeky and also in that museum as well they have a section about power about power generation mm. and it starts with 
um, there's a little machine that you'd attach a dog to and the dog would walk around and it would pump the bellows for a blacksmith so that's sort of you know ancient <laughs> power generation technology and it goes all the way up to these incredible turbines that are used for ele- you know hydroelectric power generation so yeah i guess germany is there was one that i was looking at that had um is it two concords in a museum somewhere like yeah so that's in paris so right. that's the air museum which is at le bourget which is near charles de gaulle mm. um le bourget actually is where the Concorde crashed, ironically enough, in a field outside Le Bourget. There's an airport there because they were trying to emergency land at that airport. This museum is kind of France's national air mm. space type museum. They've got two Concords. One is uh, one of the original prototypes and then one is one that flew for Air France a lot. And for a long time there was a group of volunteers keeping the one that flew for Air France sort of alive. So they were um, you know, they were powering it up occasionally, <laughs> changing the hydraulic fluid and stuff like that. Oh. I think they stopped because you know it was quite expensive even to mm. keep it going on the ground mm. um but that's that's quite funny if you ever get to see that the, the departing flight crew did two things one of them jammed his hat there's a piece of the cockpit that moves when the plane's on the ground it's sort of jammed shut and he put his captain's hat into this so it's jammed in there forever <laughs> as a sort of souvenir and also somebody wrote in french concord isn't gone she's just sleeping oh those french they're so poetic we've been very nostalgic on this podcast before about the concord and this sounds like the perfect place to go and sort of relive the memory it's definitely the case that you know concord you know, there's two of them there mm. um and you know another good place if you're into aviation if you're in france is airbus in toulouse because mm. you can go around and see the a380 being constructed right. And um, the strange thing about it is you're so high up when you see it, you don't actually get a sense of the sheer mm-hmm. size of that aircraft. Um, until you look down and see somebody walking next to it who's actually working <laughs> on it, and you're like, wait a minute, is that a model of a person <laughs> working on it? Because it's... Uh, but that's, a, that's a good visit, the one in Toulouse. John, given that it's a geek atlas, um, I'm imagining that when you got close to 128, you thought that you were going to have to, you know, kind of get to that, that <laughs> magic number. No, I, I decided up front it was going to be 128. <laughs> it had to be a power of two. Um, you know, you know, people who aren't geeky, of course, lots of people have said, why 128? And I sort of said, well, it's like 100, but for not normal people. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a round number in binary. The other thing that people will know you from is last year in 2009 you successfully petitioned the British government to um, apologise for the mistreatment of Alan Turing. Can you tell us how that came about and the story behind that? I'd always known about, of course, the story of Turing. Obviously his impact in terms of computer science, Bletchley Park, which is quite well known now, artificial intelligence, all these areas. Because I studied computer science, I had that sort of knowledge. And I had read Andrew Hodge's biography of Turing and was very well aware of what happened at the end of his life in terms of his you know, prosecution for being gay chemical castration and then his suicide you're shaking your head and I'm like every every time you tell this story it's kind of like really (laughs) really is that what happened you're not making this up Um, I think that last year around the time of Turing's birthday uh, or what would have been his birthday uh, Stephen Fry tweeted a thing saying oh it's Turing's birthday remember Alan Turing and I thought yeah you know something ought to be done about this and I I wrote something on my blog saying you know the British government ought to apologise for how this was done uh, what happened to Turing? And uh, somebody replied to me and said, "Did you know you can set up a petition on the Number Ten website?" Which I had no idea had been, you know, had been done. And um, so I thought, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And it was just one of those mad evenings. And I think it was in July at this point where I was like, "Yeah, I shall do that. I'll just set it up and do it." And um, it took about four weeks for the number 10 people to approve the petition there's a little thing where they check it's not a mad you know suggestion because there are some mad ones and um yeah then i just 
you know, try to get people interested in it. And eventually, of course, about uh, somewhere around 35,000 people signed the petition in the UK, because it's UK only, which when you work it out, it's a pretty significant chunk of the population signed it. Um, and it ended with, of course, the government um, issuing this really broad apology about, you know, the way this Turing was treated and others. Uh, and... Um, I had even Gordon Brown called me on my mobile phone, which was <laughs> quite a surprise, <laughs> just to tell me that wow. it was going to happen. So, yeah, that was quite quite an amazing thing, really. I, I guess I, I'd always been bothered by this story and the thought that part of it is that within sort of geeky circles, Turing's well-known, of course, but mm. outside he's, he wasn't super well-known. Bletchley has obviously helped mm. raise his profile, but I always thought there was this kind of this stain that, you know, that he was prosecuted and then he killed himself, and maybe the best way was just to air it, mm. just get it out, and then we're dealt, we're dealt with, you know, it's done and we can move on. So Following the computer science theme, you've uh, recently been campaigning, is it? Is that the right word, to have the, um, the Babbage analytical engine made somehow yes. is it possible can you tell us about what you've been doing there yeah i mean i wouldn't say it's campaigning what i'm trying to do is raise the money for it and i've okay. got i've got people um, who are interested in working on it mm-hmm. i'm actually meeting with the science museum later on this week to talk about the project and there'll be more announcements as, as those things go ahead but yeah the basic idea is that you know if you then work backwards to babbage in the sort of 18 1837 era he, having worked on this famous thing, the difference engine, which has been, well, the second one's been built, um, he thought of a more general mechanical machine called the analytical engine, which is a computer. So how do I justify that? First of all, it has a CPU separate from the memory. The memory is, it's all mechanical, right? So the memory is um, about, well, his initial design about 1.5K of memory, made of gunmetal wheels and cogs and everything has a CPU, which he calls the mill, which can do arithmetic operations, comparisons, all the sorts of things you can see in a simple CPU today. Um, and it's programmable using punch cards. And it had a printer as well, to, so the output could be printed onto paper or, or onto um, sheets of soft metal for making actual printing material from it. In his imagination, this was a proper computer, as Alan Turing would later have recognised one. Yes, yes, absolutely, because that's the fun thing, right, which is that, you know, one of the things Turing and Alonzo Church told us is that there's only one fundamental idea of a computer, this idea of a universal computer. And that Babbage's analytical engine, despite being about 100 years before, was still a universal computer, being be it completely mechanical. Um, so the Science Museum in London built uh, the difference engine, which was a calculator that, that Babbage had designed. And what I'm trying to do is basically finish off the job, which is get the analytical engine built, which will be uh, you know, quite large, about the size of a small lorry, um, mechanical computer. So the nice thing is once it's built, you'll obviously be able to see how a computer works because it'll be visible, unlike a normal computer, which is so tiny you can't see what's happening. You'll be able to see the memory and the CPU, the printer, the punch cards, all that stuff will be visible. So, yes, working on that, that's not going to be as quick as the Turing petition. That's a years-long project. Is that going to be on display in the Science Museum, are you hoping? Well, that's what I'm going to ask them on Thursday when I meet with them. I'm ho- I, mean, I assume they're going to say, yes, we'd love to have it, because they, they have all the Babbage papers and all the other Babbage memorabilia. But, um, yeah, I have to ask them nicely. And what are the other stages between now and getting it built and getting it displayed? What, what are the things that you're going to have to get done? There are two initial things. One is to digitise all of Babbage's papers, uh, because they're all in the Science Museum Annex in Rawton, near Swindon, um, and nobody can really work on them very effectively from there. So 
I'm hoping to digitize and make them available on the web so everyone can see what, what Babbage had come up with because he built plans for these engines, so it's not like you know, it's not just a fanciful idea. Second thing is to decide which are the plans to work on. Uh, one of the problems with the analytical engine is that Babbage kept fiddling with it. So he, just like a modern nerd, he basically kept adding memory, speeding up the CPU, changing bits, and he never sort of sat down and said, just build this one, this is the one. Um, so even up to his death, he was constantly fiddling with it. So there's some study to be done where to say, you know, well, it's this particular plan. I mean, it's quite likely that the 28th plan... His Plan 28 is the most definitive one. That's why I called the campaign mm. Plan 28. Um, but there may be another one, and that's, that's a job for a historical researcher to work on. Are you familiar with uh, Sydney Padua's cartoons? Oh. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I went to an event for the launch of the Geek Calendar mm. and got to talk to her, so that was, that was very fun. Um, and she had talked about you know, what I'm trying mm. to do as well. So yes, yes, of course. I mean, Ada, Ada Lovelace and Babbage doing crazy things. That yeah, fighting crime. I mean, yes. it's interesting, actually. That one aspect of the analytical engine project is not scientific. It's artistic as well. Mm. If you imagine this gigantic machine in motion or the, the, the metal and everything, I think that in a different way, in an artistic way, can be quite inspiring. Mm. If, anyone's, if you go and see the difference engine number two in the science museum, there's some beautiful motions within, the, within it, mm. uh, which you, know, to, you don't have to know anything about how it operates to appreciate that part of it as well. Mm. And it's quite sad that Babbage would have never seen those in action, like in his head perhaps, but he never actually got to see either of those, these things built. Well, it's certainly sad for us <laughs> because, I mean, we could have seen them a long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, you know, Babbage at various times in his writings never expected to build them. He kept sort of just improving and saying, someday someone will build this. He actually said this thing where something like, when it's finally built, it will guide the course of science forever. So we had this idea that it was very important, but it didn't really need to be built. Um, you know, it was enough to have refined the ideas. Although later he tried to get the money to build it, so it's a bit, it's a bit difficult to know whether he really wanted to or not. Uh, it's snack time again, and we're back in, in Mexico for a, for round two of two. I know. Like, would it, shall I? Could I set the scene by saying that we were wearing sombreros, enjoying a siesta? I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps having a, a, a small war with Texas. <laughs> Listeners to the show will know we previously enjoyed a, a kind of like a first course involving something, something resembling burritos and. Uh, what are the other ones? There was a lot of chili. <laughs> yeah. Chili and lime certainly came up several times. Now we're on to the desserts. So um, do you want to like pick one, Layla? Okay. Mm. Are you a fan of goat's milk? I am. Well, yeah, kind of. I'm a fan of goat's cheese, which is sort of the same. So this is called Oblias con Cagetta. It's underneath it says in English, wafer with goat's milk caramel spread. <laughs> look what's inside. Oh. Individual. Oh, look. Individually wrapped oh, letters. And they, 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 look, as. they look like nicotine patches. Yeah, <laughs> like, they do. Tea bag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is a tetley tea bag, isn't it? So it's, it looks to me like rice paper with some chocolate yeah. in, sandwiched inside it. Is that oh, what's going so, on? Or so that's is there... the wafer aspect of it, yeah. yes. Um, so oh, a, a goat's milk wafer with caramel no, I, spread I th- in I think, inside? I, I think it's a goat milk mm. caramel. I think it's, it's caramel mm. made with goat's milk. Yeah, it does taste a weird mixture of sweets and goat's cheese. And it's not overwhelmingly sweet no it's not or pleasant (laughs) it's not not sweet enough no I I wouldn't recommend that one no to the British palate something disappointing about that it's a little bit too goaty for a it's (laughs) alright I think the wafer's okay but if the caramel inside actually tasted caramelly it's not bad I mean like 
if I, if I if I was in a hot country, um, I'd uh, and, I, and they didn't have I don't know toffee pops or caramel digestives. This this would be an adequate substitute. Do, 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 are you one of those people who thinks that, that goat's, goat's milk tastes of goats? I am, but I think that's <laughs> I think that in a good way. I normally like goat products. I just don't think they there, should be mixed with sweetness. There, there was an ongoing correspondence in the Radio Times letters page about this where, where someone, presumably an enthusiastic goat's milk consumer, wrote in and said, if your goat's milk does taste of goats, there's only one reason for this, and that, that's probably the subclinical mastitis. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not oh. going, oh, well done. Yeah, thanks for bringing that image <laughs> <laughs> like, into our heads while, while trying to promote goat's milk, presumably. Uh, so what, what, what else have we got? I, I mean, I like personally, I like the sound of the ice sponge, yeah. oh, but may, may, maybe we should save that till the end. What, what about what about what about something based around mango? Oh, this one here. It's called salsa getty, as in salsa and spaghetti compressed into one glorious portmanteau. And this looks like a, a sort of a lunchbox pack of, of different uh, elements. Well, there's only two things in here. Uh, one of them's a little sachet of said salsa getty. And the other one is um, it's, it's smell a, it. it's a plastic cray oh plastic crayon that says grape on the side and it says soft candy so I assume these are grape flavored sweets or something. This will appeal to the kind of person who enjoyed the the tops juicy drop pop. Well, that's what I'm hoping yeah, for. Smell that, Rue. What's in there? I've got the grape uh, crayon open. Oh my god, are you supposed to squirt it out of the end? <laughs> it's sort of got this. Uh, it's like a lipstick. What, grape what, candy what, what's, what's that in the lid? That looks like some sort of purple crystalline. Oh my god! Some, I think maybe that come out. was supposed to be like that, and it was like a lipstick, and then it snapped oh off word. when you unscrewed it. I mean, it's quite. It's, it's a very unappealing grape smell. I mean, yeah. to, to be honest, I don't know what you guys are messing around with. Try, try, <laughs> try the salsagetti. Wow, it's kind of like um, it's like a fruit leather or a um, what do they call those kind of fruit strings? Like um, yeah, we've straw- had strawberry rope or yeah, we've had some sort of compressed apricot stuff mm-hmm. before, but this is then they they've kind of spoiled it by putting salty, herby Spoil- stuff on spoiled, the outside. Spoiled it or made it or made it all the more. Um. <laughs> They're trying to make it oh. spicy. Why does everything have to be spicy? <laughs> Some people have sent weather balloons up into the stratosphere and taken photographs of the curvature of the Earth mm. Mm. Um, as a sort of hobby item. And uh, in the summer of this year, I decided I'd do that myself in my copious free time, which is almost non-existent. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's my project, which is called Geek Atlas Goes Airborne, hence the name Gargar. Um, and it, so it's a um, polystyrene box. Uh, lined actually with the space blanket stuff that you know climbers have when they get very, very mm. cold to keep it warm because the stratosphere is minus 55 centigrade uh, a camera which is set to automatically take photographs and then a couple of computers to report positions so it's one that uses a gps link to um, essentially a cell phone but it's all in one little module to report its location that's for when it's come back down again on the ground and say i'm over here by text message so the weekend i sent myself 190 text messages like that <laughs> and it does work and the other computer is one that will actually transmit on a unlicensed radio frequency so you can pick it up from the ground so you can actually track the track the flight so basically the idea is it's a weather balloon goes up into the stratosphere about 30 to 35 kilometers high the camera keeps taking shots of the world and then the balloon bursts at some point because of the mm. pressure outside is reduced and it comes back down again. Will it come down quite fast if the balloon's already popped? Well, <laughs> Hurled to the ground like a, like a meteorite. I'm imagining a parachute. Yeah, the parachute. 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 Exactly, yes. Yeah. So the parachute, um, 
So people who do amateur rocketry do mm. this, right? They send up a rocket and there's a parachute in the cone. The overall weight is about a kilogram, the box, mm. with everything in it. And so there's a parachute on it. So it'll, it won't be particularly fast. I mean, you wouldn't want it to land on your head, but the parachute is bright orange and the box is painted fluorescent yellow. So I'm hoping that you know, it, no one's going to stand underneath it and say, yes, I'd like it to hit me on the head. <laughs> um, it'll launch from Cambridge and then there's using um, weather data from the Met Office to flight trajectory predicted so it won't get launched unless we think it's going to land in a field somewhere so if it's going straight for Norwich for example (laughs) it's not going to get launched. I saw something very similar to what you were describing um, on and I think it's someone launched one from America somewhere and it was on like I don't know boing boing or something Um, but it was amazing the photos were amazing and it's only a tiny camera I guess but you can literally see space and the curve of the earth and you're kind of going it's only been going up for like 10 minutes and it's uh, it's in space a bit longer than that the total (laughs) flight time would be about two and a half hours Um, but yes I mean it's basically once you get into the stratosphere The, the earth get you know, the air gets thin enough that you get this effect that the you know this blackness of space and mm. then you can see the blueness of the atmosphere and uh, because of course it's sunny all the time up there uh, because you're well above the weather yeah. you know pictures are quite nice right there's plenty yes. of light and yeah. you get plenty of pictures so I just wanted to do it just so I could say hey that's the picture I took I'd like to get a big picture taken pick, print it out frame it and say that's my picture oh. of where we live. Um, but of course, along the way, there's lots and lots of fun building the radios and mm. you know all of the technology that goes with it, which I get about an hour a month to work on at this point. <laughs> Very much in between projects. Yeah. How did you decide between rockets and balloon? It sounds like you've gone for a, a balloon approach to get it up there. Well, uh, it would be a pretty big rocket to get up into the stratosphere. So <laughs> you just had a kilo for the payload, so yes. it would be a it would be a serious project to get. Yeah. Up just <laughs> a missile you're launching, basically. Yeah. Be, I think it would be uh, yes, yeah, a missile, and also I don't know like. I feel a little bit safer about a balloon um, <laughs> than a rocket, which might Firing horribly, it. you know, basically, you know, the helium will do the job of raising it slowly up into the mm. atmosphere, and uh, whereas a rocket, I mean, there well, are a rocket's a weaponry. You can't just fire rockets into the sky. Though. Well, there are more. There are more sort of um, rules around amateur uh-huh. rocketry than, than yeah. ballooning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit safer and it's a little bit perhaps more within reach of someone who's just saying, well, what can mm. I build at home with my polystyrene box and mm. all this stuff, so. I love that idea. I want to make one. Yeah, I really want to make one. If you look on my blog, I've been a bit anal about testing things, oh. so I know how everything... We've had things like a camera inside the freezer at home taking pictures for four hours every minute, like... So I have... 3,000 photos of the inside of a fridge with the light off. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> a flicker group for you. Yeah, Marie's got a flicker group called uh, In the Fridge. Which is well, it's basically what you were doing, except you need a flash so that you can see what's inside the fridge. Yeah, right, I understand that, but of course I don't want a flash because that uses power and that wastes power, and I need to. You, you know. don't need a flash in space. No. <laughs> can I pick one before we get onto the ice yes. bombs? Mm-hmm. I, I really want to try the. Uh, the Pulperindo, oh, you would worry. which uh, claims to be a candy, but um, I think it's a hot. I think it's a hot spicy candy. You're not tempted by mango con chili, which appears to be mango with chili. <laughs> in chili, they spell it like chili, the country, which is pronounced Chile. Mm, what flavour pulperindo are so you going for? It seems there's a choice. It seems there's the hot and salted tamarind pulp candy, or the extra hot and salted tamarind pulp candy mm-hmm. I think just erring on the side of caution I'm going to go for the hot yeah. rather than the extra hot can I, can I have a bit of that one just so we don't open, like open it up <laughs> to more, more, more than... there are loads there's, there's like six in here and 
Pratt a little strips. You can have a competition. Look, and again, yeah, this is this is this is quite a lot that lot, a lot like those um those dried fruit. Mm. Oh, tear those off Chinese kind of like. Things, Oh, yeah. Oh, I bet these things have got some great adverts on Mexican TV. D- d- just, just from the name alone, you could have yeah. a little character. Like, I felt for it, though. Oh, this is okay. <laughs> it's quite sweet. It's like a slightly crystalline. Um, it's got a bit of texture to it. Fruit mash thing. Aww. I'm not sure why it needs to be hot, though. Aww. Maybe, maybe all their fruit is disgusting or something. So they, uh, <laughs> they just mix it all with chili to make mm. it taste better. I guess part of the reason for eating for eating uh, snacks from other countries is that they're going to be a bit weird and different. And this just, in my head, this is what Mexican food is like. Just unnecessarily spicy <laughs> with chilli and just for the sake of it. These little characters on the pole window have got fire coming out of their mouths. Yeah, just because it's quite hot. Yeah, it's very hot. Oh. I, don't, I don't think I even want to try the extra hot one. I think the, the regular hot one is quite hot enough for me. I'm I'm, I'm going back to the salsa getty just to um, yeah, cleanse the palate. Bloody hell! Yeah. Actually, the more I have of it, the less I like it. <sighs> Why don't we finish off with a sponge? Yeah, let's let's cleanse our palate with a bit of sponge. <laughs> I like the look of this. Um, it's the eye sponge with a small eye. Like, no, no, I don't like think it is eye. I think it's uh, oh, exclamation it's mark upside down. Oh. Sponge yeah. exclamation mark. Yeah. In that uh, foreign style. Yeah. Well, presumably that's so you, so you, how, you, how you know how to intone it. Hmm. But it's a question to start off with. You know when to begin. Because otherwise you get to the end of the word and then you think, oh, I should have exclaimed yeah. that. Oh, there's loads in here. Mm, that's promising the smell. There and, 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 and this is this is toast with um, oh, wow. marshmallows oh. stuck on it. Now, this is, a, this is a, a familiar treat for any yeah. British child. It's, it's one of those marshmallow-topped coconutty biscuit things. What are they called? What are they called? I can't remember. They're a thing, though, aren't they? Yeah, so imagine a little sort of butter biscuit with four lumps of uh, variously flavoured marshmallow on top. Mm. And, and it seems in this case a little bit of jam in between as well. Mm. And they haven't added any chilli to it as far as I can tell, which is definitely a good thing. Nice. Yeah, just right. The, um, the pink marshmallow is very pink in a way that's presumably illegal mm. in the UK. You assume that, Rue. Maybe, maybe they're closer to the, um, the source of the... Um the cochineal beetles that, oh. that provide that that vivid colour. Well, oh, we have we have dined like kings, like conquistadors. I mean, that's not a tasteful reference, is it? <laughs> <laughs> we have conquered the uh, the native foods mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with, with our with our smallpox. Well, Liz Henry, thank you again for sending us your uh, your local uh, delicacies from the Mexican supermarket near you. And, uh, yeah, it was very good. This I think a, you sent far too much. This is extraordinary. I mean, you know, maybe we'll come back to this in another week if, like, uh, if, if stocks run low in this country. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, and, like, uh, we, we always appreciate the people sending these things in. But don't, don't feel that you have to try and outdo Liz. <laughs> that would be madness. Stick to three or four things. Don't, don't, don't get a whole shipping container full of, I don't know, <laughs> Chinese exports. I'm, I am frightened about how much it costs Liz to post all this stuff in a massive box yeah. with packaging um, and s- sort of polystyrene stuff in it from America. So, thank you, yeah, it was great. Or, if you know the names of shops where we could buy these in London, mm. just send us the money. <laughs> <laughs> Which we will spend on snacks. What, do you, what else do you think we spend it on? <laughs> send us the money. <laughs> send us your fucking money. Um, I did just buy a Kinect. Mm. 
because I think that looks like fun mm. and at some point I want to play with it yeah. Uh, because I think that you know, the depth camera thing is quite fascinating. Now there's the free neck drivers for it. I can get it running on my Mac and just see what... I don't know what I'll do with it, but we'll see. Yeah, no, it looks very exciting. I do have uh, an Xbox, and if I were to buy a Kinect, I almost certainly wouldn't plug it into the Xbox. I think I'd plug it straight into my Mac. Have you got any ideas yet of what you might be able to do? Well, what I'd actually like to do is a, uh, is a paint program where you paint using objects that you pick up. So basically the idea is, suppose, you know, here's my umbrella. Suppose I pick up my umbrella and I hold it up. By looking at the depth, and you could isolate that shape because it doesn't have to see me. Mm. And you could sort of stamp like it was one mm. of those, you know, like those jumble stamping that's sets. That's great, And you yeah. could pick up other things from the house, so the cat, you know. <laughs> like that. so, so that's what I'm going to have a go, I think, if I get some time to, to mess around with. Just sort of a fun, silly thing like that where you can... I mean, I'm a terrible artist, so what I draw will be appalling. But maybe someone else you can draw would say, oh, look, you know, I can use different objects to draw different things. It sort of sounds like a brilliant music video. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can see someone doing that with all the stuff in their house to some sort of indie track. It's like a potato print, but yeah. you could do it with anything. It's, exactly right. it's like a potato print, but uh, maybe that's what I should call it, potato print. There we go. There go. <laughs> Hello, you. This is Ian Lee, and you're listening to Shift Run Stop on like an iPod or maybe a cassette. I saw the uh, film The Social Network on Friday. What did you think? I thought it was great. I loved it. I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen oh. it, I haven't seen it either, but oh. people keep saying that there's, you know, there's some of the programming bits in it are quite realistic Apparently, for once. Yes, Thank yes. God for that, because I'm so tired of those 3D interfaces where people like, you know, I think the worst, <laughs> was it? Uh, there was, there's one film, uh, the film with John Travolta. Swordfish. Swordfish, exactly. Where, <laughs> you knew already. It's, you know, it's famous. Swordfish is... Just where he does something with the 3D blobby things to make a virus or break in a firewall. And, you know, I know quite a lot about computer security. It's like, give me a break. What the hell is this interface? I yeah. love it. I love it on 24 when they go, oh, I need to phone one of our, like, security team to get into this thing. And they always go, hold down control and F4. And they do it. And it's no, like, oh, I'm in, I'm in. No. Well, there's a great example of that, actually, in the, the probably the worst hacking movie of all time, which is Firewall with um, Harrison Ford, mm. um, where he breaks into someone's bank account, which is held in, in the Caribbean somewhere, by going to what looks like an ordinary ATM machine and typing in about three commands, and suddenly <laughs> he's managed to steal all their money. And it's just, you know, he's obviously really good. You know, really good. <laughs> the thing that's appealing about the Social Network mm. movie is that it's Aaron Sorkin as the writer, mm. who's brilliant. He wrote West Wing and mm. you know, just amazing dialogue. And David Fincher, mm. who directed um, Fight Club and lots of other things mm. that are very good. I mean, that's a good combination. It's really that's going to make it worth watching, surely. And that guy who plays the um, main character, um, Mark Zuckerberg, is really good. And he's like a believable kind of, sort of unlikable nerd. <laughs> <laughs> he's great. He's really good in it. And, and everyone in it is good and it's just really enjoyable. So, yes. There was some criticism, though. I heard some criticism of the way women are portrayed in that film, right? That they're all basically sort of wearing bikinis and they don't um, really do any... Are there any, are there any significant there women characters? There aren't many women in it. No, I think... Um, so it's highly realistic of the geek world, then, obviously. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> it portrays Zuckerberg's life very accurately. Well, they, well, it starts off with the idea that he did this... I mean, presumably this is true, that he's, he, before he did Facebook, he did this thing called Face Mash, which was just comparing all the undergraduate female students at his college 
um, like matching them up at random in pairs, and you'd have to say which one was hotter. So that was the original Facebook, <laughs> and, and that's the sort of outrageous female, you know, all the women hated it and all that sort of thing. I wonder why. Yeah, I know. It's funny actually that because when I went to college, the guy who I was paired with for computer science, well, he was quite a geeky guy, let's put it that way. But when he turned up at our first night, imagine first night in college, there was a party for all of the people doing mathematics, computer science, all that kind of stuff. Mm. He handed out forms to everybody in the room with questions on it and he had with him his i think it was a bbc micro and he was going to input into that and work out who was best to match up with you using some dating program <laughs> that he'd written <laughs> so sweet though. i actually went last year to tunisia um, and visited the set of star wars because mm. the ta- tatooine is actually a Tatooine is actually a town in Tunisia. It's called Fum Tatooine. So we just took the name of the town. (laughs) And uh, it's it's in the south of Tunisia where the Sahara Mm. comes into the country. Mm. That's where they built Tatooine and filmed it. And so some of the bits of the set, especially of the Phantom Menace era, are still there. So you can go and wander around the streets of uh, Moz, something like that, not Moz Eisley, but the other. Well, I think it wasn't Moz Eisley. I think there was another town where they went um, in the Phantom Menace. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny because from the outside, you're instantly in this, you know, this is Star Wars land. Of course, there's nobody around. <laughs> and uh, when you go in, of course, it's all made out of wood and chicken wire and all that kind of stuff. But one of the funniest things is in the middle of the town, you know, there's those evaporator things that stick up into the sky. Everyone's seen them sort of like look like antennas. Well, I you, know what you mean. I you know, know what I'm talking about. I right. listener know what you mean. Layla's not so good at it. <laughs> <laughs> you know those evaporator things as well. Um, did you say you don't like Star Wars? I'm going to have to leave now. She's <laughs> setting <laughs> the side down. Uh, so anyway, sorry, there's a back to things. I've got a lovely close-up photograph of one where there's a sort of, what's well, meant to be a sort of radiator on the side of it. And the whole thing is made out of wood and bits of stuff sprayed grey. And the radiator thing is actually the sort of plastic tray used for drying plates. You know those things that's <laughs> plastic flipped upside down and sprayed grey. And it's just screwed on with ordinary screws it's just from a distance it looks really high tech when you look at it and realise it's upside down you could just put dinner plates in it and dry them mm-hmm. so well worth it to visit though south of Tunisia to see that if you're into Star Wars of course <laughs> yes so, so yeah, I understand some people do like Star Wars but I understand anything about it not the more recent three though Phantom Menace no, not so much but yeah New Hope I, all those all those scenes where he um, he's uh, with Uncle Owen and, and the droids come and arrive, and you know that's why he gets the droids to fix the evaporators. And that's you know, right, that's, absolutely. That's your childhood, lately. You've missed out on all of it. I wonder this. what any of this means. <laughs> I don't know what a droid. What a droid. What fixing a what? <laughs> it's what? Sort of phone. It's sort of telephone. A droid. <laughs> I think the thing about Star Wars is I actually very recently saw Avatar. I hadn't seen it at the movies, and um, I thought it was awful. I just hated yeah. it. The thing is, being really honest, I'm sure if I saw Star Wars now and I'd never seen it before, I'd think. Or if I'd been, you know, in my 40s in 77, yeah. I probably would thought, this film is terrible. You know, the dialogue is really awful. What's the story? It's such a simplistic story. Yeah. You know, what's going on? And I'm sure I would have said the same thing. So I have to sort of modulate it and say, you know what? I was quite young in 1977. <laughs> and I, that's why I really enjoyed it. And that's why it impressed me so much. I think I was born the year after it came out in the cinema. So, you know, it was very much part of my childhood. And I guess, in, as you say, in exactly the same way in a- for Avatar, in 40 years' time, people who grew up with Avatar and that was their first mm. toy and that was I'm their, sure. you know, yeah. Especially the same sort of simplistic story, right? Good and bad. and mm. Although I think the dialogue in Avatar was even worse than in Star <laughs> Wars, which is saying something. Uh, there were some such incredibly cliched lines. But, yeah, I think Star Wars, you know, for me, I was... I was born, obviously, and I saw it in cinema. And um, 
you know, I think that there hadn't been something that looked quite like it before. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's a very good story for kids, right? There's a princess, there's, you know, there's a really obvious bad guy who's dressed up and breathes funny. I mean, it, <laughs> it works very, very well. Um, and I think that it was successfully followed by a much better film. I think The Empire Strikes Back is a much better film than Star Wars. And so you sort of got this feeling there was this interesting sequence of films happening. The, you know, the original three films fit together quite nicely, um, but, you know, not so much the other three. We'll definitely keep an eye on the, uh, the balloon project. It sounds like it's going to yield some interesting results. It's going to go up and come down again. That's the physics of it. It must do that. And hopefully it'll come down somewhere where I can pick it up and take some nice pictures and have a look at them. Lovely. And what's um, your website or blog called? Oh, it's my initials, jgc.org. I'm in that was Shift Run Stop, available on iTunes or from the website shiftrunstop.co.uk. I'm a computer.